going to be reading now from the Athanasian Creed in articles or lines 29 to 37. That's found on page 495 at the back of the Book of Praise. We've been doing a series of providence on the Athanasian Creed, recently looking at this section of it. So there are two sections within uh, the Athanasian Creed, first dealing with the Trinity and then secondly with the natures of Christ. So again, our articles will be reading from articles 29 to 37. Again, found on page 495. There we confess it is necessary, however, to eternal salvation that he should also believe in the incarnation of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the right faith is that we should believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equally both God and man. He is God from the Father's substance, begotten before time, and he is man from his mother's substance, born in time. Perfect God, perfect man, composed of a human soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father in respect to his divinity, less than the Father in respect to his humanity who, although he is God and man, is nevertheless not two, but one Christ. He is one, however, not by the transformation of his divinity into flesh, but by the taking up of his humanity into God. One certainly not by confusion of substance, but by, one, but, but by oneness of person. For just as soul and flesh are one man, so God and man are one Christ. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first important teaching about the Athanasian Creed as I mentioned, there are two sections to it. The first one being about God. One essence in three persons. We believe in the eternal Father, the eternally begotten Son, and the eternally proceeding Holy Spirit. God didn't wear different masks throughout history. A father mask, and then a son mask, and then a Holy Spirit mask. All three persons are God, but each person is distinct from each other and has been from eternity past into eternity future. So we never say that God the Father died for our sin, or that the Holy Spirit died for our sin. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, died for our sins. As the Athanasian says, we, we need to rightly know the Trinity in order to be saved. And that brings us to another important teaching of this creed, the incarnation of the Son of God. What is the incarnation? Well, it's a big word. You've either grown up with it, or it's a term that you've never heard of before. You've likely heard of it. Growing up in catechism, hearing it a lot, or in the church, or you've never heard of it before in your life. The incarnation simply means 
taking on flesh. Or to say it differently, the deity taking on flesh. The incarnation is the heartbeat of the gospel. Just like the Trinity, there can be no salvation. In the same way, there needs to be a a proper understanding of the incarnation. Without the incarnation, there can be no forgiveness of sins. There can be no peace. There can be no hope. There can be no righteousness. There can be no future glory. And that's why the incarnation is such a blessing to us. We've sinned in Adam, our forefather. We're condemned to eternal death itself due to the curse. We can't fix this. We're not strong enough or wise enough. We need a savior. Rather than God calling us to climb up the mountain to him, as it were, he comes to us. He enters human history. He comes in our misery and in our sorrow. He stoops down to us by becoming a human being. And you have to believe that you're not strong enough to fix that problem. You have to believe that God can fix your problem his way by sending his only begotten son into the world. And so this afternoon, consider that he is truly God and truly man, or perfect God and perfect man, the way that it says there in the Athanasian Creed. We need to properly understand the incarnation. How do we do that? Well, in these three ways. First, don't confuse his two natures. Secondly, rely on the truth of Scripture. And thirdly, remember to ask why. So how do, we, how do we rightly understand the incarnation? Well, first of all, don't confuse his two natures. Now, when it comes to understanding the two natures of Christ, we have to avoid the errors of the past. It's not acceptable to disagree on the incarnation. You might say that sounds rather harsh. How can you say that? Well, God's word is very clear about this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. Furthermore, 1 John 2, verse 22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. 2 John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. We must therefore be careful that we don't confuse who Christ is. There have been many different errors in history which portray the two natures as being blended together or mixed. For example, there was a view expressed that said that Jesus has two persons, one person divine and one person human. The eternal Son of God came to live in the man, Jesus, as if he was a temple. 
The analogy would be that the Son of God was like oil and Jesus was water. When you pour them together in a bottle, the oil simply rests on the top of the water. There's no union. There's only division and distinction. Or to use another uh, analogy, it's like Jesus' two natures were, were fused together, like as if you took two blocks of wood and then glued them. They're, they're, they, they confused the natures. A man by the name of Nestorius, uh, Bishop of Constantinople, believed that Mary gave birth to a man, Jesus, who was united with the deity. He preached sermons where he said that a woman could not carry the deity for nine months in her womb, or that deity could hardly be wrapped up in diapers, nor could God have suffered, died, and been buried. In other words, Jesus was almost like a Greek god, like a Zeus, looking like a man, but not really a man, more like a superman. So so to use a modern day analogy, it's like he put on a mask and a suit and became a superhero, a superhuman Jesus. You see, the Greek mindset had real difficulty with anything that had to do with the flesh. Gnosticism, one of the early heresies in the church, taught that the flesh was evil, but the spiritual realm was good. Anything to do with the body and the flesh was considered bad. And so the Greeks had no issue with Jesus being God. But they had a real problem with Jesus being flesh. How could it be that the Son of God could come and take on human form? He would be tainted. And they would come up with crazy views. And to make it even more confusing, a man by the name of Eutychus taught that Jesus was a third thing. Almost sounds like science fiction to the modern ear. Like a, like a UFO or um, some, somebody meeting an extraterrestrial. Except that Jesus was called a third thing, not a third kind. And so to give an analogy, it was as if Christ's divine nature was like hot water and his human nature was like cold water. And when these two types of water collided and combined, it became a third kind of water. Warm water. So the Greeks had a lot of problems with that fact that Christ took on the flesh. They often denied the true humanity of Christ. Whereas the Jews in Jesus' day were the total opposite. They were fine with the reality of Christ becoming human. They knew his family. Jesus looked like an average Jewish man just like any other. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him, Isaiah 53 says. But when Jesus said and made claims that he was God, equal with the Father, they couldn't accept it. When he said before Abraham was even born, I am, 
They were angry. They couldn't believe in him. They said he had a demon. They pronounced him as being a blasphemer of God. They even said that he was born illegitimately, using the greatest insult of all, saying that he was a Samaritan. They denied that he was God. And so that's why we can be so thankful for the Athanasian Creed. It speaks of Christ who, although he is God in man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. Article 36 states, He is one, certainly not by blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. Article 37 continues, For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. So don't confuse the two natures of Christ. As Reformed Christians, we're not Nestorians. We don't believe what the erroneous preacher Nestorius taught, separating and dividing up his two natures like two cats in a burlap burlap sack. Instead, we confess the true union of his natures. Well, that brings us to our second point. If we're going to properly believe, we must rely on the truth of Scripture. Scripture teaches that the eternal Son of God became flesh. He didn't add another person to his being. The church fathers had a very helpful statement to explain this. They said, continuing to be what he was, he took on what he was not. Continuing to be what he was, he took on what he was not. He didn't let go of his deity. He became what he was not when he entered into the womb of Mary. What did he do? He took on what he was not. And so we read from Galatians chapter 4, where it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that he might re- that he that we rather might receive the adoption as sons. We also read from Colossians 1, where it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross, of his cross. Jesus is completely God and completely man. He's fully God and fully man. Think about some of the hymns that we sing this time of the year that so clearly teach that theology. Like, hark the herald angels sing. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's how we describe it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The Son of God in his almighty and eternal nature was veiled in flesh. 
John Murray, the Scottish theologian, described the incarnation in, incarnation in this way. He said, the infinite became finite. The eternal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became visible. The creator became created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty became infirm. God became man that he may die and by his death destroy the works of the devil and take away our sin. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he shared in our flesh and blood. He partook in our natures except that he was without sin. You see, our problem is not that we're human. That's where the Greek thinking went wrong. The problem is not in our creation. Our problem is that we're fallen. That's why he needed to be human. He took on our human nature, becoming part of the the history of humanity. So when he was born in time, he joined a whole line of generations before him, going back as far as King David, and even going back to the patriarchs, and even farther back to the beginning, Adam and Eve. Thus he became dependent, weak, needy. He was not a Zeus. He was not a sinless Superman. He was subject to everything that was part of our humanity. He took on body and soul. He was subject to growth and development. He was a baby. He needed to nurse in order to eat. He had to go to the bathroom. He had to have his diaper changed. He woke up with a bedhead. He went from childhood into adolescence. He would have been subject to acne as a teenager. His voice would have cracked as he went through puberty. He came as a normal man to normal men. He was subject to human needs so that he was thirsty and hungry, tired, subject to human sorrow. Scorned, rejected, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused. He took up the cup of God's wrath. He was subject to temptation. He knew what it was to be tempted to sin. He had to pray. He had to seek his father's help. So he took on flesh. And the amazing thing is that he's still flesh today. After his physical resurrection, he had a body, a glorified body. And what did he do when he met with his disciples at the beach? On that one of those appearances, he ate fish. He ascended into glory with a body to be with his father. His human nature still remaining with the divine nature. You see, our problem is not that we're human. 
Our problem is that we're fallen. That's why God's word is so insistent on why the Son of God needed to be a human being. Hebrews 2. It says that he had to be made like his brethren. It was necessary. It was imperative that he be made like his brothers in nature. If he were to become a faithful high priest, both compassionate and faithful in the things of God. And so for it's, that, it's for that reason that we say that he's truly God. But he's also truly, truly, true, truly man, rather. But we also say that he is truly God. Completely God. We read the Gospels. We see that he controlled nature. He calmed the waves of the sea. He could walk on the water. He had power to heal. He cast out demons. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the hungry. He forgave sins. He could raise the dead. He himself had the power and the ability to be raised from the grave. He had the power to lay down his life and he had the power to raise it up again. That's because he's God. Isaiah 9, think of what those verses say. That unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are titles of deity. He had all power. He's perfectly God. And that's why we say he is truly God and truly man. We confess the true union of his natures into one person. So much so that even at his death, his natures were not separated. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he yielded up to God, his true human spirit, but not his divine nature. His divine nature always remained united with the human nature, even when he lay in the grave. Even in the grave, our Lord's natures remained united in one person. For even there, the Godhead did not cease to be in him. And so we look to God's word and we see how it records for us this tremendous truth that he is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he's man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Fully God and fully man. That brings us to our third point. We need to remember to ask the question, why? Why is this so essential? Why is it necessary to say that Christ is one in person with two natures? And the key to understand the significance here is personal. The key is to know yourself and why you need to be saved. We understand this when we know our weaknesses. All our weaknesses. Indeed, all of life is tainted with sin. 
If sin were the color blue, everything that we say or do would be tainted blue. We're utterly unable to change ourselves. Not so with Christ. He was perfect man. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was exactly like us in every way and in every respect, but he was sinless. As Hebrews 7 says, he was holy, harmless, untainted, separated from sinners. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that he went through life just like we do. He was tested. He was enticed by temptation. He was bewildered. Just consider your own life. Life is fragile. It's perplexing. It doesn't always make sense. You suffer. You're subject to all kinds of problems and frustrations due to the curse. Not only this, you're sinful. Your life is tainted time and again. Satan is always accusing you for your lack of faith. Well, Christ walked a life with all of its frustrations. He felt these pains even more, even more, acute, more, more accurately than, than sinners ever could because he was a perfect man. He knows what you're going through. So that is Dean Ortland, uh, who authored the book, Gentle and Lowly, put it. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, and when it feels like life is passing by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, and we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we're laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of this world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, Right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what we're going through. He feels, he sits close to us and embraces us, with us. Solidarity. Because he's perfectly human, he's perfectly able to represent you. For not only is he perfect man, he's perfect God. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He became human so that he could suffer for the sins that we've committed. And that's why it's essential to point out that we're not saved merely by him taking on flesh. It's not just by his incarnation. He redeemed us when the incarnate Son kept the law. And during the penalty that we deserve, which is eternal punishment of body and soul, he was the second Adam who came to rescue the sinful human fallen race after the first Adam failed, who gave his life for a sacrifice 
for sins. Because of this mysterious joining of eternal Son of God with our frail nature, we can sing the hymns that we do. You think of the hymn that we just sang and we'll be singing again based upon the words of Philippians chapter 2. And so do you understand why it's important to rightly understand the incarnation? Do you see why it's necessary to believe that the unity of Christ, that he is both God and man? And can you say to yourself how important it is for you personally in all of your struggles and in your sorrows and in your pains? Perhaps you're not able to express your faith in the same way as our creed does this afternoon. And perhaps that's why it has been suggested by one theologian that the doctrine, that this doctrine is not so much to be understood as it is to be believed and acknowledged to be true. This is deep, rich theology. But it's deep and it's rich for a purpose. So that you can be assured today of what Christ has done. That he is Emmanuel, God with us, who came to redeem us. If I could use a bit of a personal illustration. As I was preparing for this message on the Athanasian Creed, I wanted to compare the newer translation that we have in the back of our newer hymnal to the old translation, just to see the words, to compare them. And I came across, as I took out my grandfather's old blue psalter hymnal, which I have, I came across this section of the creed, which he had underlined. The exact section that we're looking at this afternoon. There's actually a lot of underlined text through the Reformed Confessions and the ecumenical creeds of his old 1959 blue Psalter hymnal. But this is the only extensive underlining in the creed section. These specific articles, he had taken the time to underline them. What was it that struck him about these words? Well, I can only summarize, or I can only rather surmise that these words were very meaningful to him as they should be for all of us. A man of faith who trusted in God. Marvel at the thought that Emmanuel is God coming in the flesh. Remember to ask yourself why. Rather than God calling us to climb up the mountain as it were to him, he comes to us. He enters human history, coming in the flesh to deliver us from all our sin, misery, and sorrow. Is that important to you? Do you believe these words of our creed being important? And do you believe what they say to you about Jesus Christ? May we all be able to say with certainty that we believe rightly the incarnation. And may that be of great encouragement to us all today. Amen. Let's continue to sing that song, hymn 23, based on the words of, of Philippians chapter 2. We'll sing stanzas 4 
to 6.